This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy, WTOP news podcast. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And in this episode, I have the pleasure of welcoming Kevin Addicts, or I should say, Dr. Kevin Addicts, Executive Director of the Maryland Wineries Association. Now, Kevin founded Grow and Fortify to build and strengthen entrepreneurs and organizations, as he's done for the Maryland Wine Industries Association as its Executive Director. Now, he's been running that organization since 2013, but he really started out writing press articles for the wine industry. He's published books on Eastern wine regions, but he grew into the Winery Association with new events, promotional programs. He's the past chair of the Maryland Tourism Coalition, past president of the Maryland Agricultural Resource Council, and past chair of the Wine America State and Regional Association's Advisory Council. Kevin has co-hosted Word on Wine, a radio show for four years. He holds a master's in environmental journalism from CU Boulder, Go Buffs, a doctorate in communication design from the University of Baltimore, and a bachelor's in journalism and music composition from Loyola University. Kevin, you are a very, very accomplished person. I am so curious with this amazing educational background. How did you get into wine? You know, you make that sound much more interesting than I think it is on the ground. But uh, I, I actually got into wine in college when I had a roommate who came from a restaurant family and knew a whole bunch about wine. And while, you know, other friends in, in and about the dorms were, you know, imbibing tequila or beer or whatever college kids uh, back then drank, I was learning about Pinot and Bordeaux and uh, really cut my teeth on re- restaurant-level wines and then got very curious when I got to grad school all about where these were made. So that kind of carried with me to Colorado where for internships and part-time jobs, I wrote news articles all about the Colorado wine industry and then coming home uh, on breaks, got interested in Maryland wine. Did you grow up in your household drinking wine? You know, I can I can remember... When I was about 23, introducing my mom and dad to their first, at least first that I'd seen glasses of wine. And um, there, was, there was beer around growing up and, you know, backyard barbecue style beer and maybe a, a drink here or there. But not, not really a wine culture in the family. I was the first one to bring for Thanksgiving or holiday meals uh, any semblance of wine. I can be pointed to by many a family member as as the one that introduced wine and wine culture to the to the larger family. Well, that's kind of interesting. That's a little bit backwards from the usual story where yeah. somebody's grown up around the table. They've always had wine on the table. Their parents were into wine. But you're really introducing, as the child, you're introducing your parents to wine. It's kind of interesting, which is kind of fits right in with how you have taken the road less traveled. You had just mentioned the Colorado wine industry. I didn't even know there was a Colorado wine industry. And of course, now you're the executive director of the Maryland Wineries Association. And one thing that I was pretty shocked to find out was the Maryland modern wine industry is 75 years old this year. Yeah. That is, I, I didn't even know that. I you know, I didn't even know it was 20 years old. Can, can you fill us in a little bit about the history of the state's wine industry? Well, well, sure. And, and first, I'll, I'll zoom out and just say that for listeners, there, there are 50 uh, states, obviously, and every one of those states have vibrant 
wine industries. And they've grown up differently. They've evolved in different ways. The New York and down to Maryland, Virginia, and then over to Ohio wine industries are some of the oldest in the country. And wine was being produced, obviously, on, on the East Coast in the colonies. When, uh, when folks immigrated from Europe, they brought their winemaking traditions and planted grapes. And we, we have stories of Jefferson and, and growing grapes and Washington imbibing. And, and even in Maryland, our, our history begins with a gentleman named uh, Tennis Paley, who grew wine uh, around uh, Prince George's County, just outside of D.C. And then we've got John Adlam was a big producer of wine, uh, one of our uh, early founders in the country. And Maryland, you know, we had fits and starts, and we're also the, the home to the USDA's research facility. So grape varieties, as they were being bred and researched, were, were often planted in trials in and around Beltsville, just outside of D.C. again. And uh, it, it really wasn't until 75 years ago when Philip Wagner got started. Philip Wagner was a Baltimore Sun reporter who, while over uh, researching and covering the war, snipped some grapevines and brought them back and started a nursery uh, here right outside of Baltimore. And that's where our modern wine industry began. And, and from there, it took about 25 years to get to a point where we had 10 wineries in the state. And uh, those 10 held on for about 10 more years. And then finally, the modern wine industry, I would say, that the more recent wine industry began to evolve, and the laws changed, and and you know now we're up to a hundred wineries. A hundred wineries, seventy-five years old this year. No idea, right? Pretty amazing, and and amazing that you know I live in Maryland and really have only had a, a very slim opportunity to visit some of the wineries, and now with. 100 wineries, I guess I'm going to be pretty busy as soon as the pandemic's over and I can get out of my house. Well, I, I, I will tell you that uh, many of our wineries are, are open now for what we're calling modified socially distanced uh, tastings and, and really great facilities. And one of the reasons why the industry has taken off is, as you know, uh, there's a lot of development pressure in and around, you know, D.C., Baltimore. Yeah, yeah um, sure. And really all the East Coast. And wine being a high value crop, when you actually plant grapes, grow those grapes, harvest those grapes, in and of themselves, the grapes end up yielding uh, about 20 to 30 times per acre than traditional crops, corn, soy, uh, and wheat. And if you turn it into wine, your value skyrockets. And so on a very small farm, in Montgomery County, Prince George's County, you know, Baltimore County, Frederick County, where the development pressure is, is some of the most intense, you can keep the farm. And not only can you keep the farm, but you can actually use that revenue to buy more acreage and grow the farm. And that's where a lot of our wineries have, you know, they're kind of rooted in that interest in preserving land and keeping farms farming. No pun intended. Well, that's right. With the Maryland wine industry as Many other states, and you had mentioned growing grapes in Maryland, mm -hmm. many other states already have a requirement that in order for a wine to be labeled as wine from that particular state, they actually have to use a minimum amount of grapes grown in that state. Mm -hmm. I understand that Maryland recently introduced legislation requiring that certain winery license holders 
use a minimum amount of Maryland-grown grapes, which I would just think makes empirical sense. But evidently, this must have some kind of impact on the industry. What does this signal for the brand of Maryland wines? I think in most wine industries, you, you end up having two subgroups. You've got, you've got folks who are really just making a product. They're making wine, and they chose that locale to make it. Um, they're not necessarily, as I mentioned before, farmers. They're not necessarily um, devoted to the land or devoted to terroir. Then you've got the, the other more traditional set of wineries, which you know, I'm happy to say make up a, a, a huge majority of all the wineries in the country. They picked a spot because they wanted to grow grapes and make wine from that place. And so, you know, you, you get off the, the airplane in Chicago and you drive into the country and you're tasting Illinois-grown wine. You, you do the same in, in, you know, just about any major uh, metro area in the country and you're tasting local wine. In Maryland, we have two different license classes, and it gets you know pretty into the minutia and into the weeds uh, to to talk about them. But you know, one class is just, hey, you want to make wine and sell it? Here's a license. And then there's the Maryland Farm Winery license, which is our Class Four license, and that's the license that it was based on the New York Farm Winery Law, which is intended to to see what Maryland can grow and see what wines Maryland can make out of those grapes. And there's the federal label law that says you have to have 75% of grapes coming from a particular place to put that on a label. So anything that's labeled Maryland wine, which are a majority of our labels, has to be 75% Maryland fruit. And speaking of the fruit, what are the most popular varieties that Maryland grape growers are currently farming? Well, and, and that's the most exciting piece of it. Uh, Talking about terroir, you know, you look around the world and you can see, uh, well, it's a mix of terroir and rules. You know, if you look at Bordeaux and, and some of the other old world regions, they are prescribed which grapes they can grow. And that's not just willy-nilly. That's because over you know, hundreds of years of trying, they figured out these are the ones that grow best. So, you know, dear producer, don't waste your time on these others. Uh, in the U.S., we don't have those rules. And so we have producers trying all manner of different grapes. And we've got a, a grape researcher at the University of Maryland that has and maintains five research vineyards around the state where he is growing and producing wine out of about 200 different varieties. And uh, that research has led us to understand that Maryland and its, its distinct microclimates, because we've got our eastern shore which is a maritime climate. We've got our Southern Maryland, which is, uh, was described yesterday by one of our growers as just hot, just plain hot. And we've got you know, our, our Midland Hill region and the Piedmont region, and we've got Western Maryland, which is cooler and a little more Alsatian. So across the state, we've got just about every variety growing from Albarino to Zweigelt and everything in between. You know, Chardonnay is ubiquitous. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc is becoming very popular. Obviously, the Bordeaux blends are are king, but so are some of the Italian varieties. We're seeing Nebbiolo and Barbera. Uh, we're seeing Sangiovese, which which I hope we can try today. And it's just very exciting to see that. Now, from a market standpoint, we are always asked the question: Well, what's your grape? You know, what's going to be your region's grape? 
you know, Virginia has over the years said that this grape or that grape is their grape. Um, Napa, we think of Kebsov. You want to be a renegade Zinfandel. You think of Oregon and it's, it's Pinot and Chardonnay. Uh, in Maryland, it's, you know, if I had to pick one, I would say red blend because we've got some really interesting red blends which have Syrah and Bordeaux blends and Malbec and Chamberson, which is a, a hybrid, which is uh, really, really grows well here. And, and they're beautiful wines. Um, and then we've got, I could probably name 30 different varietals that we're growing as well. Over 200 varieties are, are currently being tested throughout the state. And I loved how you went Albarino to Zygel. You went A to Z. <laughs> well, I did. And that was on the fly. That was pretty good. I hadn't, hadn't planned that. That was good. So it seems like there's really a ton of wines to explore. And you said over 100 wineries to explore in Maryland. There seems to be a lot of numerous wine trails throughout the state. What makes these wine trails independently unique? And what sets Maryland's wine experience apart from, say, your neighboring states like Virginia? So the, the trails, we have used the trails as an opportunity to give someone an excuse to to get on the road and try something they haven't tried before. Uh, you, you may or may not be surprised to know that selling people on local wine can be difficult. That you've, you've got a couple different markets of people. You've got folks who are very, very deeply into wine. And when I say that, I mean, you know, the old school set who grew up reading the books and subscribing to the monthly paper newsletters. To them, wine regions beyond the old world plus Napa and maybe Oregon are invisible. And it, it, it takes a lot to get them to open their eyes to any semblance of local wine, whether that be Finger Lakes or Virginia or you know some phenomenal wine coming out of Texas. It's invisible to them. And when presented with it, it's ignored. You've got another set who are the, these kind of locavores who are interested in anything that is being made and produced near them. And they may be wine knowledgeable, they may not, but they're open to experiences. And so the wine trails really cater to uh, giving people an excuse or an entree into the industry. And then when they get to the wineries, you can, you can put your cork dork hat on and, you know, hang with our our higher end wineries and their, you know, $20 tastings and, you know, their $80 Bordeaux blends, um, or you can just walk in on a random day and and say, hey, tell me what you got and walk me through it. And you can try, you know, as I mentioned, the Albarino or a, or a Sauvignon Blanc, or you can see some really creative, interesting things like Piquette, and we've got all manner of amphora aged and orange wine and, and you know, all kinds of really creative innovative, interesting things from, from natural to biodynamic and beyond. Uh, so, you know, the wine trails are really an entry point. They're, they're meant to bring people in. And, and to quickly answer your second question, what do we offer that, that others don't? I think whether you're on a wine trail in Minnesota or a wine trail in Maryland or Virginia, you're getting a sense of the local culture. And along the way, you're getting a sense of the local pairings and, you know, very often when people are on wine trails on our eastern shore, you know, they're stopping to get a crab cake along the way and the wineries are recommending which wines pair with. And that's, that's the experience. It's, it's not that you're going to try, and obviously the terroir, but it's, it's not like our wine trail is going to be exceptionally different than another wine trail, but for 
the wineries and the wines that are on it. I think that part of the movement that you had mentioned, locovore was the term of yep. art that you used. Illy needs more press, if you will. And you and I are very fortunate that we share a good friend named Dave McIntyre, who's the writer for the Washington Post, who's been very dedicated in really championing local wines. And I love that about Dave. I think that's a, a wonderful thing. I think we need to get out the word more about our local wine industry. I've been invited to Texas to try their their local wine. I think Texom is a pretty big event there. I have not yet gotten the opportunity to travel out there. But I am curious, what type of events is the Maryland Winery Association doing to maybe attract some attention to the local wine scene in Maryland? Well, we have a, a whole bunch of public events that we gather between, I'd say, 40 and, and 60,000 people a year at our events around the state. And these events are meant to be, you know, I call them FAM events, which is a tourism term, but they're, they're familiarization events. They're, they're trying to get our wines in front of new audiences. And then the end goal always is to get folks to buy wine and travel back to the wineries for an actual visit. Uh, we have held uh, press events and, and some events before. We have had another one planned in April, which got scuttled um, due to unforeseen circumstances uh, <laughs> with the virus. And, and we'll put that on again next year. And, and you mentioned Dave McIntyre, who is, is one of the cheerleaders in chief of local wine. And he and colleague Jeff Siegel many years ago created an event and an organization called Drink Local Wine. And it was in 2011 where we hosted what became the last Drink Local Wine conference uh, in Baltimore. And, you know, threw all these wine writers and bloggers on buses and, and treated them to all of the great wine and culinary experiences in the state. A uh, couple years later, we held a, a similar conference or hosted a similar conference here um, uh, by Len Thompson uh, of the Cork Report in New York. Len organized yep. it called Taste Camp. And that was a blast as well and, and a little less formal than the Drink Local Wine Conference. But I, I think it's, it's these advocates who help spread the word and get the message out about drinking local wine and encouraging folks who hear, you know, who are their audiences to, to just take a risk. You know, you, you don't have to completely buy into all local wine because you'll find things you like and you'll obviously find things inevitably that you don't like and that's fine. But um, there are so many interesting stories uh, of people making incredible wines in the state that uh, it's just, it's just time to explore. And I think now more than ever, when we're potentially locked away for a month or two and wondering how we're going to get our wine and, and food and spirits and beyond local wineries are delivering. And, and a couple of them had COVID packs, mystery packs, and we just <laughs> ran a program ourselves where we, we offered seven different mystery packs and they ranged from 70 bucks to 150 bucks. And you got four wines and you picked red, white, sweet fruit. Uh, we had a weird and wild pack, which had some really creative wines in it. And then a premium pack, which were all wines that had been rated 90 or above by James Suckling or the International Wine Report or you know, any of these more mainstream reviewers. And people were thrilled because they got a chance to taste all these wines by, and not have to drive around to the wineries because most of these wines, as you know, 
most of these wines are not distributed. So they're winery direct only. So you're either on their wine club or you see them at an event or you visit them, but you're not going to find them in your local wine shop. Interesting. Now, you just mentioned the state, some of these uh, wines have earned top scores from critics like James Suckling. And I'm just wondering if you're willing to share the name of a couple. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, but look who's producing some of the top varieties now in the state. Sure. I'll, I'll give some, uh, because my memory fails me, I will give you the winery names of some of the folks who got the highest scores and uh, encourage you to look up the actual scores. But these were all 90 or above. Um, we'll, we'll taste. I have a, a few of them in front of me to taste. I say we. You'll, you'll be vicariously tasting. But uh, Bordy Vineyards is one where their, their Bordeaux blends, their Cabernet Franc, and their Albarino have all earned top scores. Black Ankle Vineyards is another one. Uh, Big Cork, Antietam Creek, Vineyards at Doden. You know, th- these are names that, that folks who haven't been there, haven't tried these wines, will have no, no concept about it. And that's, that's what's expo- so exciting to me about local wine, which when I was involved in Wine America, every year we would uh, have a, a, a fall meeting somewhere out in the wine hinterlands, and it could be, you know, in the Upper Peninsula in Michigan, or we mentioned Texas, or, uh, you know, all, all these great places. And you go there as a completely blank slate, having never tried the wines, and you come away with, well, I come away each time with a case or two of wines that have stocked my cellar over the years. So, you know, any Thursday night when it's time to grab a bottle of wine, at least in my cellar, I've, I've lived this. And, you know, there could be Wisconsin wine that I pull out or, or, a, or a North Dakota wine made from a vine, that, a single vine that's been growing for over 100 years, a wild vine. Just amazing wine, but you have to be open for it. Wow. Okay. Now I'm thirsty. So thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so we now come, fortunately, to the part of the podcast where we get to find out what's actually in your glass. So, Kevin, what are we drinking today? Well, first up, we've got that Albarino, the, the A of the A to Z that I mentioned. So um, the Albarino, just put that in there. Um, <laughs> I, love the, I love the sound effect. Well, this is live local like there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, this is happening. These are not sound effects. So, so <laughs> it's a 2018 Albarino. Talking about terroir for a minute, 2018 was the single worst vintage that any of our producers could ever have fathomed or imagined or remembered. It rained. It was a beautiful year. And then come August 18th or so, it started raining and it rained through November. And it was just, you know, every, all hopes were gone. What we found were that the wineries who really knew how to grow grapes and really knew how to manage grapes of any style and of any condition, we're able to make still beautiful wines. And um, this Albarino is a great example of it. It was, it was harvested early, and it's incredibly tropical, and it's got bright fruit. Let me just confirm that acidity. So it's still really, really bright. Lots of tropical fruit. You know, I get some pear in there as well. And Albarino, you know, being a Spanish variety, we always thought in Maryland that we needed to stick to some of the more traditional, um, I say European, but I really mean Bordeaux varieties because that's what was really grown here. That and hybrids um, were, were kind of our history and tradition. 
in a couple of wineries, took a chance on Albarino and found that it is an easy grape to grow here and it produces reliably beautiful wines year after year. Who's producing this particular Albarino? So this is Bordy Vineyards. So they are in Hydes, Maryland, which is um, about 15 minutes, 20 minutes north of Baltimore. And these uh, vineyards are actually uh, not grown on site. Um, they are grown west of Frederick. And so Bordy has two vineyards, two vineyards, uh, one in Baltimore County, where it grows some whites and some reds, and then uh, more of their, uh, what they call their landmark series, are out in Western Maryland. And that's where this is grown, the Albarino? Correct. So moving up, I see that we have uh, a Syrah on the menu. We do. We have a Syrah on the menu. This Syrah is a 2017, and this Syrah won, or excuse me, the, the year before this, the year prior, the 2016 won our Governor's Cup competition, which is an annual judging where we bring in a uh, wine writer and wholesaler and, and you know tradesmen and women to come taste through the wines. And Syrah is a grape that is under intense scrutiny and the subject of much argument in the state. Really? When, wow. when it can be grown, it grows beautifully well, but it is susceptible to frost, uh, vine decline that we're still trying to research. Um, the vineyards that have produced, wineries that have produced really, really great Syrah are doing everything they can to play with different clones and different trellising and anything they can to keep this alive because it, it makes such a beautiful wine. And this one uh, from Catoctin Breeze Vineyards, which is uh, just north of Frederick, so about 40 minutes north of D.C., it just comes at you with all types of red fruit and white pepper, precision white pepper. And it's just, it's such a beautiful wine. It's got a long finish, uh, really, really good body, and those kind of red and, and darker fruits, a ton of plum. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's kind of a red, red and black fruit bowl. Such a great wine. And their winemaker, Mike Lentini, he likes to oak the wines, but he likes the oak to be a component and not kind of a noticeable aspect of the wine. So it is oaked, and you know that it was oaked, but oak isn't one of the first things that you say. It's, it's really, really soft, really beautiful. And um, three years old, my guess is that, you know, it'll, it'll peak in 10 to 15 years. Wow, so it's got some ageability to it. Real ageability to it, and and a lot of our winemakers are focusing on that. Oh, interesting. One of my favorite grape varieties is Sangiovese. And you don't really see a lot of Sangiovese here domestically. When I think of Sangiovese, obviously Chianti, right? That's you know first thing I think of is is Italy, right? But you're growing it in Maryland. So this grows in a few places in Maryland, and this one is from Fiore Winery and Vineyard, and they are uh, north of Baltimore, up 95 on your way to Wilmington and Philadelphia. And Mike Fiore is an Italian immigrant, came from Calabria. At all of our meetings, you know, he is the first one to kind of reintroduce himself to new growers and say, and I love it when he says, I've been making wine for 250 years. <laughs> and, you know, him, him, he and his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather 
have all been making wine uh, in Calabria. And so he brought the tradition over. You know, the Italian varieties were not on the recommended list. And so he, he became very well known for his Chamberson and his Cabernet Sauvignon and his Cabernet Franc and a beautiful Chardonnay. And it's really been in the last 10 years that he has produced and then won a Governor's Cup, one of our, our top awards, with this Sangiovese. It, I mean, it's beautiful. And so this is the 2014, so six years, but still bright and lively. And the color is, is just so, uh, you know, kind of vibrant brick, almost garnet. The aromas, there's, there's honey and strawberry and there's uh, cherry and a, still a, a great acid in it. It's really plush. And so I, I find that, and he's made some Sangioveses that can be a little more on the traditional tight, lean don't quite want to say astringent, but, you know, kind of on that tighter uh, right. With more acidity. With more acidity. Well, he's managed to keep the acidity, but it's got this ripeness to it, this plush ripeness to it. And it, wow. it's, just a, it's just a beautiful wine. And it's a deal. I mean, it, it, may, be, it may be $20. And, uh, you're, you're killing me, Kevin. Oh, I know. Yeah, and, and, I want to, like, crawl through the computer right now and have a glass of this. We'll, we'll, the wine will find its way. Somehow find its way. Good. Okay. And we're going to finish up with something I am not familiar with. Uh, and all I have here in my notes is drum point. Drum point. Understand that correctly? You, yes. And so um, we're going a little backwards in, in tasting, but this wine can hold up. So this is a blend of predominantly Sauvignon Blanc and uh, a healthy dose of Chardonnay. And it seems like a bit of an odd pairing, but this is a wine that just screams for seafood and crab cakes or shrimp, you know, shrimp off the grill. It is a stunningly gorgeous wine. And I would describe it, I would describe the mouthfeel as a little bit oily, which I mean in a very positive way. I, I think sometimes with a Marsan Roussan, right, and I get, yeah. I, you get it sometimes with Viognier where there's this, um, we'll call it umami, right? There's this extra in there. So it, it has that. Their straight Sauvignon Blanc does not have it. And so it's, it's some, you know, extra that comes along, you know, some greater than its parts type element. And just on the nose, it's very, very clean and crisp, but you get this new world, um, I'd say new world, but not Sauvignon Blanc. So it's not the grassy Sauvignon Blanc. It's more of a California Sauvignon Blanc where you've got that ripeness and again a little hint of tropical um but it's not pushing toward the the fig gooseberry you know dare i say cat pee aroma it's so big in the mouth you know i we were talking on a on a virtual chat the other day about this wine and it's for crab cakes but it's for you know pan seared crab cakes where you've got a little bit of crust i mean it's it can handle some spice and this one is from a place in Davidsonville, which is almost to our Chesapeake Bay. And deep down in their soil, there are, are layers and layers of oyster shells. And they're not ready to say that that's where some of their minerality comes from. But I'm guessing in 100 years, we will, we will have determined that. Drum Point, the name of it, comes from an old railroad that was planned to go right through the farm. And this farm has been in the family uh, for, I, I believe they're on their fifth generation. So it was one of the original land grants from the kingdom. And uh, Vineyards of Doden is the name. Really, really great red blends there. And all of these wineries are making 
you know, phenomenal wines beyond just the ones that we've, we've tasted. Remind our listeners just briefly the four wines we just went through. Well, I might have to taste them again. Um, <laughs> Bordy yes. Vineyards Alberino, 2018. The Vineyards at Doden Drum Point, which is 2017. Catoctin Breeze Syrah, 2017. And the Fiori Winery Sangiovese from 2014. All 100% Maryland grown. And uh, all of them estate grown, uh, with the exception of Bordy, where it's their vineyard, but it's offsite in South Mountain. So I, I would still lowercase estate. You know, Kevin, I really hope that people who listen to this episode, when they visit Washington, D.C., for whatever reason, will take some time to explore the Maryland wine trails, maybe a day or two, and discover some of these amazing wines that you've gone through with us today and others. I'm excited about this. I have to say, living in Maryland, uh, the first thing I'm going to do when I can get out and about is hit you up for a winery map and some recommendations because I am very excited about the wines we've covered today and your story and the Maryland wine industry story. So thank you for sharing that with us. Well, of course, and better than that, I'd love to meet you out of our, our wineries and make some introductions because you, you will not be disappointed. Well, I'll let you do that. I, I think that would be wonderful. Well, Dr. Addicts, I appreciate you appearing on The Vine Guy. And with that, I think we're going to wrap it up. And again, thank you for being my guest today. Thanks for the invite. I, I truly appreciate it. That'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. Sarah Beth Hensley produced this episode. The music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and catch my Wine of the Week shows every Friday afternoon on WTOP and WTOP.com. Until the next time, remember, do good, drink well.